So you may have noticed that I'm not leading worship today and Steve is not here. And we are very, very blessed and fortunate to have Justin McRoberts with us. Let's give him a round of applause. <laughs> Thank you, Justin. So it's my pleasure to introduce Justin. He's an old friend of Regeneration. He actually was around during the conversations of when Regen was first starting out as a church. I just learned this this morning. He's a good friend of Albert's. He's a good friend to our community. He's come and spoke before in the past, so we're just so lucky to have him here. He's an author, a songwriter, and a pastor in Concord. So again, if we could welcome Justin back up on the stage. Yes, I was around a long time ago, and I'm still here. And it makes me relatively old. Not like old, old yet. 42, I'll be 43 in January. 42 is not bad. I mean, it feels bad at times. There's a problem with the knees. That's not what this morning's about, though. Not my knees. We planted a church in Concord, my friends and I, literally like a year and a half, two years before the team planted the church here as part of why there were conversations. Because we were a bunch of young people who were like, what are you guys doing? I don't know. What are you doing? I don't know. We're doing this church thing. Cool. How's it going? I don't know. And it was a lot of that kind of conversation. And uh, we've learned a lot, not just about practicing community, but about practicing the faith about like the disciplines that actually make up the practice of the faith. And this morning, the practice I want to talk about, an essential practice, is the practice of prayer. I am not someone who is like a really like natural devotionalist, right? Like you, you might have that friend who is like, you know, she spends hours in prayer, you know, or she just sort of naturally goes to that place psychologically, emotionally, spiritually. I'm like a mission, I'm like, go, let's do the thing. Prayer has been, I'm, I'm not going to call it a struggle, but it's actually like it has felt oftentimes like I don't know what on earth I'm doing. And even this many years later, I, I started following Jesus when I was 18. A lot of the time I feel a little bit lost in the tall grass when it comes to the actual practice of prayer. You hear me using the word practice. So I want to talk about my journey, my like to this point life long-ish process of learning what prayer is, what I, how I do it. Now, my favorite part, almost always, of sermon prep is the Google image search that comes along with prayer. So anytime I'm doing something that's topical, I just go to the Google and I say, Dear Google, what do you see? And when I type in the word prayer, I learn a few things about my prayer life. And very specifically, I'm praying at the wrong time of day. I did not know that. I had no idea it was like a sunset only thing. But like, <laughs> And as funny as this is, which I think is funny, like... The other part of this, by the way, there's like there are people praying. The other part is like when I crack my Bible open, it never has the Shekinah glory just kind of flying off the page like this one does. Like, you know, I'm just like, I don't know what this means historically. The reality is for me that there is this sort of emotional expectation that prayer ought to feel in some way, shape, or form like this looks. As much as I want to tell myself I don't actually believe that, there's something in my soul, there's something in my guts that like if I don't have some kind of experience that feels a little bit like some of these pictures look, I end up having a little bit of an anxiety about my prayer life, about like why am I not experiencing God? Why am I not hearing anything? Like I have this expectation. And that's rooted in like a long history of stories and 
of what prayer looks like or like, you know, people telling these glorious stories of sitting in prayer and realizing there were 19 angels around them with coffee. And like, I haven't had that experience, but twice, just the two times. Early engagements with prayer. My mother grew up Catholic. When I grew up, like we didn't do church stuff at all. My dad was very anti-church, just thought religion was for weak people and all that. But my mom had these kind of artifacts from her practice of faith laying around. And I don't remember like the actual impetus for this moment, but this is my earliest memory of any form of religious activity. She had one of these little porcelain statues of Jesus. And I went into her bedroom and I took this porcelain statue of Jesus into my room and I set it on the bed. And I knelt down because I'd heard that's what you do. And I folded my hands and I bowed my head and closed my eyes because that's what I'd heard. That's the image I had of prayer. There's a little sort of icon of some kind and you on your knees and hands, there's a bed. But every time I would bow my head, I would put my head like and the statue would fall over like every time. So I'd be like, all right, go to pray and dunk. And it would fall over. And then I would pick it back up and set it there. And I would kind of get myself prepped again and dunk. And I would have to reach. And that's, the, that's all there is to that memory. Like, I just remember setting that sucker back up, like, who knows how many times, like, the resilience of a child. I'm like, this has to work, right? But that was like, that's it. What I had done, I obviously didn't know it then at, like, six or whatever. I had confused the essence of prayer with the mechanics of prayer. And because I couldn't get it done correctly, I never got it done at all. Because I couldn't do it the right way or the way I thought was correct, I never actually got around to the business of praying because I was trying to get it done right. And I'm guessing that might sound a little bit familiar to you. We oftentimes confuse the mechanics of a thing for its essence, the mechanics of community and all the expectations that get wrapped up in that, and we miss the community that's actually around us. We freak out about the mechanics of politics, and we forget about the essence of it, and then we stay out and don't get involved and don't vote. We confuse the essence and the mechanics of interpersonal romantic relationship, and we lose track of one another. The mechanics matter, but only in the context of the essence of prayer. And here's the first thing I want to say about the essence of prayer. And I wish someone would have told me this when I was six. You're not going to get it wrong. Prayer is not one of those things in life that, like, you're just going to blow it. It's just not a reality. It's just not true. Like, NBA Finals, you can totally blow that. Absolutely. There's a way to do that wrong. Barnes. But prayer is just not a thing you're going to do wrong. Here's part of what I mean by that is like, I wrote this book this past year with a friend of mine, and in the center of the book is this idea that I believe I pray because I'm human, not because I'm religious. Tradition can and does provide language, shape, and space for that primal urge to pray, but the instinct to connect with God does not emanate from that tradition. In other words, like, I pray because I am designed to pray. Like, I pray because in the guts of me as a human being, I'm designed to have a connection with the one who made me. This is something we foundationally believe as Christians. I believe I am designed to have a relationship with the one who made me. And I want to set us free as much as I possibly can this morning from the notion that somehow you can ruin that. No, you can't. You can keep yourself from doing it, and that's kind of the worst thing, is when you keep yourself from practicing it. But if you get on the field and take some swings, you get on the court and take some shots, and whatever way you put effort forward, grace covers the distance between what you can't do and where you're trying to get. That's the essence of prayer. So here's a story that sort of gets to that. Halloween 2014. 
I have a son. His name is Asa. He is six now. You can do the math. So he was younger in 2014. And he had heard about Halloween the year before and sort of got it a little bit. Like, that sounds neat to walk around and just get handed things. I was like, yeah, we can do this. I, I want to do Halloween this year. I said, let's do it. He was like three, three and a half. Like, let's do it. Do you know what you want to wear? Like, do you know who you want to be? He said, I want to be a superhero. And I'm kind of like a low-level comic book nerd, so I was pretty fired up about that. Like, I'm thinking he wants to be the Flash or Batman, like my favorites. And he says, I want to be Super Asa. And I was like, okay. Super Asa. Interesting. So, like, what does Super Asa wear? And so <laughs> he goes to his room. He's so like my wife. He had all this stuff wired already. He goes in his room and he comes out and he's wearing his little like blue pajama bottoms with red and white socks pulled up over his bottom. So the socks come up and the pants go underneath him. He has had this like long sleeve white shirt and a cape, which I didn't even know he owned. I didn't know he had a cape, but he came out. I was like, where'd you get the cape? He was like, I have had this cape. I'm like, what, just because you're three, you get a cape? Is there some sort of cape fairy I'm not familiar with? And this little crown that his Auntie Jasmine made that says Asa on it. And I was like, that's awesome. And then he goes to the garage and gets this little roll of blue tape. And he says, I need mom to put a blue S on my chest. I was like, this is the best. I'm like, I'm so fired up. So Halloween, I go out. He and I, this is us on our walk. Someone took a picture of he and I. That's the duct tape outfit. It's made completely of duct tape. I've been wearing that for 15 years straight. I never have to think about what I'm wearing on Halloween. Like, I know what I'm doing and where I'm going. So I get my duct tape on. He gets his little costume and he's rocking his Crocs, which is so classic. Like, little three-and-a-half-year-old superhero with Crocs. And we're walking around the neighborhood, and it's going pretty well. Just a little older neighborhood. And we turn a corner, and he sees some of the bigger kids from the neighborhood. They've got the Batman, Superman, Flash, mostly DC Comics stuff. And Asa sees them, and he says, Dad, can I go with the big kids? Some of the older kids knew who he was. I'm like, yeah, sure, you can go with the big kids if you can keep up. Like, I'm not going to run with you. And he said, okay. So he takes off around the corner. And I stand and wait, you know, try to give him some space. He comes back around the corner maybe five, seven minutes later, and he's, like, super bummed. You know the sad face that children have that adults can never really get back? Like, once you're an adult, you hide your sadness so well that you forget how to do it in public. He had that full-blown, like, the big lip and the alligator tear, and, just, and he's walking like this with this little Spider-Man bucket. He comes around the corner, and he's like, <laughs> like, buddy, what happened? So the big kids told me I can't be Super Asa. They said I have to pick a real superhero. And I was like, oh, man. Now I have a dilemma, right? This is like a dad dilemma. Like, how do I navigate this moment without injuring someone else's child? So I knelt down, something like wisdom got a hold of my heart. And I said, man, I'll tell you what, buddy, those other kids, they look pretty great. He went, yes. I said, that flash costume is dope. He goes, yes, it is dope. <laughs> I said, I think those kids look great, but here's the thing, like those kids, they got those ideas from other people's stories and then they bought their costumes at Walmart. You, you invented your superhero. You came up with that in your own mind. You designed your own costume and put it together. Man, I'm telling you, I think you look great. I think that's really special. And he went, really? I said, yeah. You want to go get some candy? He goes, yeah. You want to get more candy than all those older kids combined? Yeah. And that's how we got our vengeance. 
my religion in general, my prayer life very specifically, most of the time, it looks a lot like my son's costume. It's just kind of cobbled together. I'm making most of it up as I go along. There's some things that I know, and there's a lot that I don't, and I just sort of throw it together, and I'm just convinced that the Lord's not going, I'm sorry, I can't hear you over the sound of your foolishness. Like, I don't think that's happening. Like, I think the Lord receives you and I when we approach him in any context at all, in any way we possibly can. He's just concerned that we put the effort in. He is holy. We are not. It is grace and not our own wisdom. It's not our mechanics that bridge the gap between our inability to pray and his desire to connect with us. Grace connects us to Jesus Christ. It is us putting ourselves out there without shame, being like, this is what I've got. I'm pretty sure the words are wrong. I might have dropped an F-bomb somewhere in there, Lord, but can you receive me anyways? And he's like, I got you because I'm your dad. And I'm just not concerned about the mechanics. I'm concerned about you. And there's a world of voices, a lot of them religious, that are going to tell you the other side of that story, that you eventually have to get your garbage straight. You never get your garbage straight. Can I get an amen? You never land the plane. He lands the plane. You just get on. So how do you pray? And this is actually for you. I can see you, so I know if you're going to respond or not. I'd love to hear just a couple of examples of things that actually do or have worked for you either now or sort of historically. So like as an example to get the pump primed, like who prays in the car? Anyone pray in the car? And I'm not talking like, Lord, forgive me for the bird. I'm saying like, <laughs> you pray in the car and it's kind of a regular thing. Someone tell me about praying in the car. Anyone hit their hand up? Like, so will you pray in the car like every morning? Like how's that, what's that work? Okay. Like before you get going, you're praying about the trip. If that's about protection, that's about, what is that about? Cool. To keep you cool, right? So you don't lose and have to ask for forgiveness later. That's good. All oh, right, good. That's very good. Who else? Like praying in the car, what do you do? So it's probably a good idea to pray out loud so while the driver here listens. <laughs> right. That's very good. Okay, besides the car, like who else has like a regular thing like that you do or have done that works or clicks for you? Hands up, anybody. Right in the middle. Oh, that's good. So in relation to the actual job you do, you're praying about your job. I love that. That's really good. Okay, a couple more. A few other things that really work. Yeah. An unusual time? Okay. <laughs> good. Oh, so that becomes kind of this like meditative thing for you. Hmm. It's a crochet. That's powerful. I like that. Having something regular, right? Who is clear when they pray walking? Anybody? Like standing and walking? Right? Like, I have small dog complex. I got way too much energy for the size body I have. And so, like, if I sit too long, I'm like, Brrr. like, I get hazy. So if it's time to seriously talk to the Lord about something, I'm usually on my feet because it keeps my mind a little bit focused. Part of what you're hearing, I hope, is, like, it's in the car. It's crocheting. All these doorways through which we enter into this practice, none of them are particularly wrong. None of them are particularly better. There's times when things work for you and times when things don't. Other side of that story, 
This is the following year. That's my son in his Flash costume because he decided the following year he did want to be the Flash. That's me in the duct tape outfit, just so you understand it is actually every year. My wife is a Green Bay Packers fan. She's been a Green Bay Packers fan for Halloween. No, but she's not actually a Green Bay Packers fan. She hates football. Um, <laughs> she hates football because I'm a Raiders fan, and there's a thing we could talk about marriage and football at another time. But she's been a Packers fan for Halloween for the last 13 years. Again, we know what we're doing. It's about regularity. And this year, my son inserted himself into someone else's story with someone else's design because there are times when you just don't have the creative wherewithal to make up your own thing. Can I get an amen? There are times when your own words just don't pull it off. You just don't have the words to pray. You don't know what to say. When the disciples came to Jesus, I mean, think about this for a minute. For you and I, this is an option. Like, you can go to church or not. You can practice your faith or not. But like, as one of the disciples, they grew up in a culture in which like, that was the majority of life. Everything was religiously oriented. And they still went to him as you know, almost full-grown adults and were like, how do you pray? And they asked him. And what he gave them was this wonderful gift that we call the Our Father or the Lord's Prayer. And I think what he was giving, at least in part, is because like, they were so caught up in the mechanics. They were so caught up in not knowing how to do it. He just wanted to give them a tool to set them free so that they actually could go about doing the business of praying. They had other people's words to use to actually do it because they didn't have their own so this prayer for me has been really formative in terms of when I don't know how to get to what I'm needing to say or when I'm drawn to prayer, I'm kind of lost. I begin, and I love this, I begin with our Father. Usually what draws me to prayer is something that's kind of individualistic. It's something that's about me and my life. But before I get to talk, if I'm using this prayer, before I get to talk about me, I'm reminded in this prayer that I am met by God who is the God of all people. Our Father, I'm reminded that whatever draws me to prayer, I'm met there by millions and millions and billions of folks over the course of history who have needed Jesus too. Our Father, who art in heaven, I'm reminded that this person I'm speaking to isn't just my bro. He is holy. He is in heaven. His name is holy. And then before I pray about my stuff, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That way, what the point at which I actually come about, like talking about what's in my heart, it has the context of God and his kingdom and his will. What this prayer does in someone else's words, it actually gives shape to what's happening in my own soul. Can I get an amen? And sometimes a song does that for you. Sometimes a prayer like this does it for you. I should have brought it up here, but like who has a prayer guide, like a prayer journal, like a, something you use on the regular? I have this prayer guide that I got when I was a young life leader in the Diablo Valley just on the other side of the hill. I went on staff when I was 19 years old, and it's the thing I use regularly. And if I don't have that thing to tell me where in the Bible to be reading, I am usually a little bit lost. Someone else's words, someone else's shape, and there's just no shame in that. Now, of course, that's still about words. And sometimes words in general, whether they're mine or someone else's, don't cut it. So one of my favorite paintings is the one here, you can't totally see because of the light, but this is a Rembrandt piece called The Prodigal Son. And it's this gorgeous, gorgeous painting. Henry Nouwen, who's one of my favorite writers, he has a book that's called The Prodigal Son that's actually about him going to the place where this painting is actually hanging and sitting in front of it for days and letting this painting draw out of him stuff in his soul that he couldn't get to otherwise. And you've been there when something visually just kind of gets inside your heart. 
Maybe it's a film, maybe it's a sunset, whatever it is, but there's something about the visual arts that speaks to us and draws things out of us in a way that is unique. Sometimes words aren't enough. So my buddy Dylan Mortimer, who is 30, he'll be 38 this year, which is great. Dylan has lived with cystic fibrosis for the vast majority of his life in knowing so. I don't know if you know what CF is, but ultimately, for the sake of this story, folks who live with CF, the average life expectancy of someone with CF is usually between 33 and 38 years old. And by the time he turned 30, Dylan, who is a pastor and a visual artist, he started talking about the reality that like, he did not know how to talk about his life anymore because he didn't know when it would be over. He was like, I'm facing my mortality. And I don't know how to talk to anyone about this. He said, I don't even know how to pray about this. Like, how do I talk to Jesus about this? And we've been there. When there's a thing that I have to pray about and I don't even know how to start because I'm either so ticked or so confused or so I don't know. So he started making these pieces about his disease. He made this huge series of pieces that are about his cystic fibrosis. He said, this became the way I prayed. I would create pieces and I would set them down and offer them to the Lord and say, I don't have words, but I have this. There are times when the visual is what does it for us. In that book I mentioned earlier, I asked my buddy Scott to pair up these words. I wanted to provide words for folks who were struggling to pray, but we also wanted to provide visuals for folks for whom words just weren't enough. So the book looks like this for the most part. The prayer simply says, may love be stronger in me than the fear of the pain that comes with caring. And that's the prayer, but it's visually manifest in this gorgeous piece. We've gotten emails or messages from folks and they're writing about what the little visual piece did for them. Like I realized that I, I was living in this container that I thought was safe, but there's life growing out of me that I can't contain. It's like, gosh, that's a great insight. Similar kind of a thing is, you know, may I learn to make good out of what I'm given rather than only make sense of it. And hearing people respond again to the visual has been so cool to listen to what the Lord Jesus Christ is actually up to in people's souls that they couldn't get to until they saw this piece and drew it out of them. This is another way to say what I'm in after so far this morning. James Martin, who's a spiritual director and author, says, the right way to pray is whatever works for you. Which leads me to this. One of my favorite writers, and I'm going to blank his name, it takes me usually about 30 seconds to remember. And he writes for the New York Times. He wrote about baseball. He loves baseball. David Brooks, that's the guy's name. Great writer, brilliant writer, conservative writer. He wrote this piece about going to a Dodgers game. We can forgive him for this. He showed up at a Dodgers game. This is a number of years ago. And if you show up at a game, baseball game, about an hour ahead of time, what do you see? Anybody? Batting practice, fielding practice, see guys on the field who are practicing. And at the time of the story, the guy playing second base for the Los Angeles Dodgers is a guy named Jeff Kent, who also played for the Giants. And Kent, at this time, was about 38 years old, was towards the tail end of his career. But even at 38, he was still one of the best defensive second basemen in baseball. He's a fantastic, fantastic player. And he's watching Jeff Kent out at second base an hour before the game. And here's Jeff Kent at second base as a coach at home plate tosses the ball in the air, hits the ball out towards second, towards second base. And Kent would slide over, one knee on the ground, ball in the glove, pop, step, point, throw, and then stand again. And the coach would toss the ball in the air and hit it, and Kent would slide over, ball in the glove, pop, step, point, throw, over and over and over again. 
And it strikes Brooks like, here's a guy who started playing baseball when he was six. He's 38. He is one of the best baseball players in the world, and he's still running the same drills he ran when he was six. Why does someone have to do that? Why would he choose to do that? Well, when a baseball comes off a bat in a major league game, it can be going anywhere between like 88 and 125 miles an hour. And if you're standing 90 feet away from where that contact happens, you don't have time to think about what you're supposed to do. Otherwise, you're going to take one in the face. And that's hard. Life oftentimes comes at you a lot faster than 125 miles an hour. Can I get an amen? There are times when I need to get myself into a posture of prayer. And if I'm waiting until it's time, I'm screwed because I'm going to forget. So I practice. I practice prayer. I do it regularly, whether I feel it or need it or want it or not, because there are going to be times when I'm going to need it. There are times when I have to feel it. And when that time comes, I need my soul, my body, my mind. I need my whole person to be able to get into that posture of trusting him, of asking him, of being bold, of being present. If I just wait until I need it, I'm going to be in a lot of trouble. So I practice prayer. I want to think more about the prayer as a practice rather than anything else. It's something I do because, yes, at times I need it, but it's something I do because it's in me to do and I need to kind of not get it right, but ah, I need to do it regularly. I need my body to know this is part of being a human. That's the problem of sin. There are things that are just human about us that we forget. Here's the other thing about the practice of prayer. Last little story here. These are shelves. They're not mine. I wish. I wish I had a bookshelf like that. My wife and I live in a little condo unit on the other side of the Calicut Tunnel over in Concord, Pleasant Hill area. And a number of years ago, we were pregnant with our, well, she was pregnant. She was pregnant. I was responsible. If you have questions about that, please see Jane after the service. <laughs> and we realized, or thought we realized, we came to the conclusion that we didn't have enough space. We looked around a little place and we needed to like, fix our place so that we could have another person living in it. So... We moved all the stuff out of what had been our little office. It was going to become Ace's room. And we had to go buy this shelving unit. And I'm an artist, so I don't do handy things all that well. So I called my buddy Jesse. I'm like, hey, man, can you come over and help me put the shelving unit together? He's like, yeah, sure. So I set aside on this given Sunday, like, three and a half hours. I said, hey, after service, you'll pop over? And he's like, yeah, it'll be great. So, like, we make sandwiches. I buy beer. We're going to have, like, man time. We're going to build things and eat sandwich, beer, and thing. <laughs> Jesse shows up, and we build this unit. And by we, I mean Jesse builds this unit while I hold the tools that he doesn't need. And he's done in like 45 minutes. And I'd set aside three and a half hours. And he's like, I guess I'm done. I'm like, cool. He's like, I'm going to cut. Is that cool? I'm like, that's great. And now I have a dilemma. Do I or do I not eat his sandwich? <laughs> and the answer was yes. Yes, I do. I eat, I eat his sandwich. Now, if you're like me, this part will sound somewhat familiar. I blocked out three hours. I was finished in 45 minutes. And I have an opportunity now to be more productive. Right? Like when I finish early, it's like, oh, cool. Now I can add more crap to my life that I didn't have there already. Like that's what I think. And again, something like wisdom got a hold of my heart and said, why don't you just stop for a minute and take this moment in? Okay? So I sat down on the bench and I started eating Jesse's sandwich. 
and I'm looking at the shelving unit, and I'm looking like, gosh, I couldn't have done that on my own. Thank God for Jesse. Seriously, thank you for Jesse. Thank you. I have really good friends. Jesse, what a great friend. People get paid to do these kinds of things. He just came over, and I have Jesse as a friend because I'm part of this really cool family, like my spiritual family, like these people I belong to and belong to me. Like, there are a few folks who would do things like this, but a great church family, and I love that we've made the decision to live where we live. We, my wife and I, gosh, my wife's great. I love my wife, and like, oh my gosh, we're gonna have a child. We're having a child. I'm gonna be a dad. I'm gonna be a dad, and it's gonna be fine because I've got this great community of people and this insanely great wife, and just for like an hour, I just sat there, and I took in how insanely good my life actually is. And I never do that. And I should regularly. I should regularly stop and pay attention to how good my Lord God has been to me. Can I get an amen? Because everything else in my life is going to tell me I've been cheated. And he's better than that. So I wrote it like this. I realized that the whirlwind of gifts and delights I found swirling around in my mind were always right there, but I had hardly ever slowed down enough, much less stopped to see them and enjoy them. My anxieties pull me ever and always into the next moment, even before I fully notice the one I'm in. And in so doing, my anxieties keep me anxious because I don't know what will happen in the next moment, the next day, or the next year. I've never known what tomorrow holds, but pausing there in that room, I knew for certain that this day had held enough. Just like so many days that had passed, I had always had enough because he is good. The very beginning of the life of Jesus, the beginning of his ministry, he's baptized by John and he hears this voice from the Father that says, this is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Jesus hadn't healed anybody. Jesus hadn't announced himself as the Savior, as the Messiah. He simply belonged to the Father. And in that moment, as I sat there in front of those shelves, in so many ways I received this from the Lord. I love you. I'm proud of you. You're mine. This is the essence of prayer. This is what he wants to get across. This is why we do this regularly, because we need to hear this regularly so that we can be who we are fully designed to be and so that we can pass it on. Maybe in short, I would say it like this. The heart and essence of prayer is not your ability to pray. It is the love of God in Jesus Christ. Last story. I lied about the last one. So this kid, his name is Antonio. I met him at this church in South America where I was visiting a number of churches that partner with Compassion International. And he told the story about the power, what he said, the power of prayer in his life. He grew up like a lot of kids do in poverty. That His dad and mom had major problems. At some point, his mom left because his dad was kind of an abusive drunk. His dad would leave for three, four days at a time or longer, and then he would come back and he would be abusive. And usually he was abusive with his sister first, and then he would fight with Antonio. And Tony says that he remembers for years and years and years leading up to the time of this story that his like, kind of root memory of his dad is that someday I'm going to take care of this man. Someday I'm going to end this cycle. And for him, that really meant violence because that's what he'd seen. Someday I'm going to put an end to this. 15 years of age, he says his dad had been gone for three weeks, came home again drunk, walked into this one room little hut thing they live in and started getting abusive with his sister. And Antonio stood up, and because he was 15, he says, I was older, I was stronger. 
I beat him that time. He says, I beat him to the ground and I stood there over my father. And I thought to myself, literally, this is the moment I've been waiting for my whole life. This is how this cycle ends. And then he says this. Then the words of my friend jumped into my mind. His friend is this gentleman who's living in Kansas at the time who sponsored Antonio. This is Michael. He picked up a packet that Kansas-oriented gentleman did. He picked up a packet like this, and it said Antonio on it. And he decided to sponsor him for $1.23 a day so they could have a relationship with this kid. And years and years down the line, as Antonio was writing about what was going on in his household, this sponsor would write in every letter about all kinds of stuff, but in every letter he would say, I'm praying for you, and I'm praying for your father that he would receive the mercy of Jesus. Letter after letter after letter, after hint after hint after hint of hearing what's happening in the household, I'm praying for you, and I'm praying for your father that he would receive the mercy of Jesus. And he said, the words of my friend jumped into my mind, and I picked my father up, and I said, you leave this place, and you don't come back until you're ready to be part of this family. And a year later, Antonio's dad came walking back into that room and found himself once again on his knees, but not because he had been beaten up by his 16-year-old son, but because his 16-year-old son had asked him to pray. And they knelt on the floor. And this man in his 50s received Jesus Christ and started his life over again because he had received the mercy of Jesus Christ through his son who'd received it through this sponsor who just said over and over again and meant it, I'm praying for you and I'm praying for your father that he would receive the mercy of Christ. How many letters did that take? Was it one? Antonio says it's probably 70, 80 letters I've got. So I'm praying for you and I'm praying for your father that he would receive the mercy of Christ. The power of prayer, it's tied to the practice of prayer. Do you know that you are beloved and that nothing in this world can steal that belovedness from you? That's not going to come from the one prayer. It's going to come from a life postured in prayer, a life that denies the voices around us regularly and says, I know that I'm loved and I'm going to receive that from my father, that this is my son. You are his kids. Maybe this is what you need to hear today. You are my child. I love you. I'm proud of you. And then you need to learn to pass that on. This is the essence and the power of prayer. We're going to do a form of prayer called song. Uh, will you stand with me? I'm going to invite the band back up. You're on the praises of your people You're on the silences between You're on the walls between the nations You're on the walls we fight for peace You're in the absence of a father You're on a mother's patient love You're on the dreams of friends who wander you're in the worlds they're dreaming of. Lord, give me eyes to see. Lord, give me strength to leave. You give me all I need. So give me courage to believe. You're in the midst of all who gather. You're in the bread and in the wine. 
audacity that comes with approaching the creator of the universe. Can I get an amen? Of believing for ourselves that he wants to hear from us. That's part of the practice of faith is actually believing that of us and then believing this other thing that he does make all things good. It takes an equal if not a greater amount of audacity. So may we be a people who practice prayer that we would come to believe that in the depths of us that he loves us, that he wants us near, that he wants us with him, he wants to hear from us, and that he will and does make all things right, that it is well with us. Let's skip this, that second song, go to that last song. This morning, if you're interested in potentially sponsoring a child, I'd love to meet you in the back and hand you a packet that you can become someone who prays for a kid who's not praying for himself. You can pray on behalf of a girl who's not praying for herself, that she would know what you know because of your practice of prayer, that she is beloved. Uh, I'd meet you in the back and uh, we'll set you up with that. Let's do this last song together. When peace like a river attended my way When sorrows like sea billows It 
And thank you for the love that lies in the heart of that work. You don't make things right with us because you're so annoyed that we're getting it wrong. You make things right with us because you love us. You carry us the same way you picked us up. There is no shame. There is no guilt. There's no disappointment. We're yours. We belong to you. So may we, in our practice of prayer, approach you with no shame, with no guilt, with no fear of disappointment, but know that we are received by the Father in you, that we might be a people who can love our world that same way, no shame, no guilt, no disappointment. You are simply beloved of the Creator. Amen? Amen. Have a wonderful morning and a great week.